Hey, I'm Patrick Brown, and it's my great privilege to welcome you to another episode of Crown and Crozier, the podcast on church, state, and faithful citizenship. On June 15th, 1215, in the meadows of Runnymede, just west of London, the English nobility and clergy gathered to witness and to compel King John to place his seal on a document that enshrined the rights of the church and of free men and declared the sovereign to be subject to the rule of law. The name of this document was Magna Carta, the Great Charter of Liberty. For centuries, it has served as the foundation for the systems of law and traditions of freedom enjoyed by the world's leading democracies, fundamental liberties that we cherish today, trial by jury, security of the person, no taxation without representation. These can all be traced back to Magna Carta. In many places across the English-speaking world, June 15th is Magna Carta Day. To celebrate, we're throwing a party, and our guest is Dr. John Robson, maker of the documentary film Magna Carta, Our Shared Legacy of Liberty, and author of the companion book of the same name. In addition to his documentary and written titles, Dr. Robson is a columnist for one of Canada's leading newspapers, the National Post. In his passionate and entertaining style, Dr. Robson tells the story of this seminal moment in the history of democracy, the protection of human freedom, and the independence of the church. Along the way, he showcases one of the main heroes of this tale, Archbishop Stephen Langton, who helped craft Magna Carta behind the scenes, inspired by the conviction that liberty is a gift from God, in whose image and likeness mankind is made. Thanks as always for tuning in, and enjoy the show. There are two swords. And the question is, which sword is superior, the spiritual sword or the temporal sword? And without God, democracy will not and cannot long endure. I die His Majesty's good servant at God's first. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in today. We are delighted to welcome our guest, historian and journalist, Dr. John Robson. It is a pleasure. So here in our neck of the woods in North America, in the province of Ontario, we will be celebrating and commemorating the first ever formal Magna Carta Day in the province, June 15th, 2021. So we thought, what better way to celebrate the occasion than to dedicate this episode to the Great Charter itself, the Magna Carta. And we're delighted to have uh, Dr. Robson, someone of your expertise, with us today to help in the celebrations. Just to break the ice, maybe you can let us know what brought about your interest, your passion in, in this particular historical development and document. I mean, you've you devoted a good chunk of your professional career to shining the light on the Magna Carta through books, through documentaries. What first ignited your interest and, and what has captivated it? It's an intriguing exercise to try and connect up the dots looking backward. I mean, it's obvious to me now why Magna Carta is important and why I'm interested in it. But there are so many different strands. I have always been passionate about liberty. And uh, my my path to where I am now in terms of, of political ideology began, I think, with the Cold War. I was actually a uh, a hawk before I was a free marketeer. Uh, my PhD is in American history. I was studying the foreign policy of Richard Nixon. 
And gradually, as I examine the question of what freedom means and how it works and why some places find it relatively easy to sustain free institutions and others find it very difficult to create them, including the post-communist Russia, which uh, where things went very badly, the more I looked at it, the more I had to look backward to realize that these are not new things, that the, the parliament did not achieve its finished form because people in the 20th century were far smarter than their ancestors. And in fact, parliament worked better in the 19th century than it did in the 20th, and that it survived challenges to liberty in the 18th century. And it could only survive them because it was already a powerful and in fact, a venerable institution in at the time of the American Revolution. And all the threads pointed back in the same direction. For instance, if you look at the state seal of Massachusetts during the American Revolution, you see a guy who looks like the New York, the New England Patriots mascot with a sword in one hand and a scroll in the other. And that's the old, oh yeah, there's a law scroll. But if you look more closely, it says Magna Charta. And therefore, it, it became clear that the, the American revolutionaries were not trying to create, but to preserve liberty. And people like George Washington, it's, it's odd in a way to hear them talking about their English liberty, but they were very determined to protect it when they thought it was under attack in England or in Britain by that point. But when I talk about connecting the dots, it is also the case that my, my grandfather, I mean, he was this kindly Grandpa Bertie character in my life, but when I got to be an adult and to look at his scholarly writings, because he was in fact a professor of medieval history, I discovered that he too was a huge enthusiast for Magna Carta and for the parliamentary institutions that developed from it. So in some sense, it presumably came to me from family discussions that I was absorbing ideas that I wasn't aware that I was absorbing until years later. But it seems to me that whenever you look at, at the problem of freedom, not just the idea that, well, I should be able to do anything I want, because that's not freedom, but the idea of effective protection for liberty, liberty under law, you discover that it isn't a new thing, that it is, a, it is an inheritance that dates back to the 13th century and indeed to before, but Magna Carta is that critical point where, again, liberty was under attack, as it has been so often, and people stepped up to defend it and preserve it and to make a formal stand. And so Magna Carta didn't say, wouldn't it be great if, Magna Carta said, here are the rights we have always had, and we must make sure that they are set out clearly so that anyone who tries to take them away will be crossing these tripwires and we'll know what's happening if we care enough to defend it because it's also essential that people need to be willing to step up as they did in 1215 um and it's a funny thing to say let us act as people did in 1215 you get very strange looks when you say that <laughs> but it's a, it's true that these people whose material conditions were very different from our own i mean again they'd never seen a light bulb they certainly didn't have personal computers and um they didn't have twitter feeds but they did understand that if something is worth having, you must be willing to stand up together to protect it when it is threatened. And again, that's that's a lesson that's obviously very pertinent to you know the, the world wars and so on, but also very pertinent today when freedom of speech is under attack and our parliamentary institutions seem to be in terrible trouble. The executive is gaining strength in a way that would have made George III green with envy. <laughs> Well, let's uh, put a pin in that discussion around standing up and stepping up just for a moment. Before we look at what the Magna Carta itself says and what it laid out, I'm interested to hear more about the context. I mean, obviously, it didn't come about in a vacuum. 
But maybe just give us a quick overview of some of the key events uh, leading up to the, the signing of the Magna Carta in the year 1215. What, what, what do we need to understand in terms of its context and genesis? Well, it all goes back to 411 AD and, and before. <laughs> it is essential to understand that the people who made Magna Carta, like the people who made the American Revolution, were looking not forward but backward for their inspiration. And this, is, again, is, is, is a disorienting thought to the modern mind. But they were convinced that they had freedom and that it was in danger of being taken away from them. When, when you look back, I mean, you go back as far as, as Greece, really, this is where this idea starts that people ought to be free. But though the Greeks understood the importance of freedom, they didn't really develop effective institutions. Even Athenian democracy was very, very unstable, prone to mob rule, and people could just be ostracized. They could be banished for 10 years because a majority vote, people said they didn't like them. You didn't have any kind of constitution that said you had certain inherent rights and they couldn't just be taken away by a majority vote. And the Romans made some further progress. I mean, that very famous uh, scene in the New Testament when um, Paul is just basically being strapped to the rack and they're about to do all sorts of ghastly things to him. And he says, is this how you treat a Roman citizen? And the guy with the, with the scourge's hand goes, ah, what, you're a Roman citizen? And, and suddenly it all stops and the machinery of the law kicks in and they send him to Rome because what else can they do? And when the Romans come to, come to Britain, they bring that idea with them. And, and again, I know we're, we're, it's, a, it's, a, it's a flyby, but you, it's important to understand that there's this very deep historical development. And after the Romans leave Britain, there's a, the, I mentioned 411 AD because in 411, the legions depart because the empire is crumbling. And um, a number of the leading Romanized Britons get together and they do a very remarkable thing. They send a letter to the emperor and they say, we notice that the legions have left and we're feeling very anxious about this because of all these barbarian invaders. And so we thought you should know that we're going to take our government into our own hands. And mm. that's a very rule of law thing to do. And um, they also say to the emperor, by the way, you had this law that free people could not carry weapons. And um, we think this is an affront to liberty. So we also want you to know that we are going to start carrying weapons again. And the emperor writes back and says, good grief, I've got problems of my own. I hope <laughs> good luck with the Saxons. Uh, and in fact, they, they don't have very good luck with the Saxons. The, these Germanic invaders with their terrible gods come and lay everything waste. And then something happens that's so strange. We take it for granted, but it's really very peculiar. Britain is evangelized. Monks start showing up and saying, excuse me, could you take a break from the blood eagles and the feasting and the revel drunken revelry to listen to us explain to you that a dead Jewish carpenter was God? And you'd think <laughs> to yourself, these would be the last words you'd ever utter. But in fact, what happens is that these barbarians say, well, tell us more about this very strange sounding idea. And in short order, they are converted. And when they are converted, they start to write down their laws. But these are not laws where the king says, I think you should do this and I don't want you doing that, so here are the laws. They are the laws that the community has agreed to be governed by. And the job of the king is to uphold the consensus of the community. This is a critical extra element in self-government, this idea that the tribe or what would eventually become the nation or the kingdom makes its own laws and it is the job of the executive to execute the laws, not to make them up and just put people in prison if they don't like them. And so by the time you get to Alfred the Great and the Danish invasions, these, these terrible barbarians with the fire and sword have become Christians who uphold the rule of law. 
and defend the rights of individuals. They found the missing piece of kind of sort of institutional protection for the Roman idea that the people ought to have rights. And then, sure enough, the Danes come in, the pagan gods and fire and sword and very nearly destroy the whole thing. But Alfred the Great manages to fight them off. And I could go on about that, but I'll, I'll, I'll put a pin in that one for you. We'll refer um, our listeners to your documentary. Yes, exactly. And, and so then by the time we get to the 10th century and the 11th century, the Dark Ages in Britain are a time of peace and plenty and considerable individual liberty. And so when William the Conqueror comes over in 1066, this grandson of Norse pirates, he has this idea that he should just be king and everyone should do what he says. And he does succeed in, in defeating uh, the armies of the Saxons and making himself king, but he does not succeed in making the Britons into his slaves. He doesn't bring in the kind of government that exists in most of the world where the emperor is divine or nearly so. He doesn't even really succeed in bringing in what exists in a, in a good deal of Europe. And so the story from 1066 to 1215 is of these Norman kings trying to establish one-man rule and the nation refusing to allow it to happen. And so, in fact, when you, when you get to Bad King John, or we should call him, you know, Jean Santerre, because, in fact, he didn't speak a word of English, though he is the first king to be born in England and die in England since, Ethelred, uh, since um, Edward the Confessor. But when he start, starts disregarding the rights of his citizens, imprisoning people, taxing them without their consent, and all these kinds of things that, in the popular mind, went on all the time in the Middle Ages, it is, in fact, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Stephen Langton, who summons a gathering of barons and clerics, and he says, we have to do something about this king, and here's my suggestion. And he produces the coronation oath of Henry I. So this dates back to 1100, Henry I taking the throne. But in it, Henry I promises to obey the good laws of the kingdom that were inherited from Edward the Confessor, the last of the Saxon kings. And Edward's laws, again, look back to Alfred the Great. So Langton says we've got to make John reaffirm the oath taken by his great-grandfather, Henry I, and we've got to add a few things, because John is a complete weasel, and we can't trust him as far as we could comfortably spit a rat. And so he produces this draft that says, you know, the church shall be free and there shall be no taxation without the consent of the kingdom. Uh, a great deal of Magna Carta is there in this initial meeting in 1213. Of course, John doesn't want any part of this, and so a war erupts, and things get quite ugly. But in the end, John is brought to heel. He's dragged to Runnymede and told, you can put your seal on this document, or we can put your blood on it, and uh, we would like you to make a decision in the next five minutes. And so John is obliged to seal Magna Carta. And of course, he doesn't mean it. He's got his fingers crossed behind his back. He immediately raises an army, tries to undo the whole thing, uh, and uh, then dies unlamented. But... Going forward, what you see happen when his son, who becomes the rather feckless King Henry III, he's quite young when he becomes king, and his advisors are trying to figure out how to make sure that he stays king. So instead of saying, let's kill everybody and pile their skulls up, they have Henry reissue Magna Carta. And it is repeatedly reissued by the kings. It is read aloud in all the cathedrals twice a year so that everybody, including those who cannot read, will know what their rights are. But again, it, it is all a matter of the, the kingdom, because it's not, it, I mean, it's fine to have the archbishop and some barons go blah, 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 but it's not going to have any effect if people aren't willing to make sure that it really happens. But they do. The, the, the yeomen, the knights, the archers, all the people whose names we don't know who are in the ranks of the army fighting King John are part of a community that says we will have our ancient liberties. 
And that is uh, a slogan which I think, again, is still very pertinent to our own time. One other element of context that affected how the Magna Carta came about and, and what it said and the prominence of freedom for religion in the, the sequence of that document. So my, my understanding was there's also there was also a bit of power play going on between bad King John uh, and the Pope in Rome uh, in terms of, you know, who got to appoint bishops and, and whatnot. Can you speak a little more to that and, and how that factored into the dynamic? Yes, there is an enormous hoo-ha, and the pivotal figure here again is Stephen Langton, and I, I have to admit to you that having been given a modern education, as in a very secular education, I'd never even heard of him until I started researching the documentary. But uh, initially, Langton is chosen as Archbishop of Canterbury, and John says, no, I hate that guy. He he likes liberty and decency, and I don't want that in an archbishop, and he won't even let him into the kingdom. And there, there is a big fight over whether Langton can come to England. And it gets so bad that eventually John is excommunicated. And the uh, Pope invites the son of the King of France to go and occupy the vacant throne of England, at which point John says, I was just kidding about all that. I love Stephen Langton and he'd be most welcome. So Langton comes to England and he is invested as Archbishop and he uh, absolves John of his sins, but on condition that he promise to respect the liberty of his subjects. And again, John promises this, but he's lying. And so then you do get as far as Magna Carta. And then John, again, being a slippery character, but not... The problem with John is that he was evil without being inept, uh, which has made him very dangerous. He then goes to the Pope and he says, you know what? How would you like to have England as your fief? You could... I'll, I'll just put myself under the papacy, provided you get rid of that miserable Magna Carta that I was forced to sign. So the Pope says, that's great, and excommunicates the the people who had signed Magna Carta and declares it null and void. And at this point, Langton refuses to read the bull aloud that does all these things, and he's once again forced to leave the kingdom. So you see, by this point, Langton initially defied the king on behalf of the pope, and then he uh, defied the pope on behalf of the barons. But he always stood up for liberty. And I think it is important to understand it's not just the liberty of the church, although that is the first clause in Magna Carta and one of the three that is still in effect, but also that there is this conception that human beings have rights because they're made in the image of God. Mm. And that Langton understands that there is a fundamental metaphysical reason why not just the church, but the populace, the uh, the people who come to church, need to be free. Langton is an extraordinarily brave and principled man, and I should point out that he did have a day job. He was Archbishop of Canterbury. He divided the Bible into the chapters that we still use today. All of this, this wow. Magna Carta was something that he did while functioning as a senior clergyman. And um, I have visited his tomb. It's also quite a, quite an odd thing, very British, because they've given one of those, you know, uh, marble sarcophagi out in the in the churchyard and then at one point they extended the church and the wall is actually now halfway through his tomb so i guess his head is out of the rain but his feet are still getting cold however he is of course <laughs> gone to a place where we don't get cold feet at this point all these machinations are going on and they don't look good on the king and they don't look good on the pope but they sure look good on archbishop langton because he never wavered from his principled stand in favor of liberty as a gift from God. Is it fair to say that the shadow of recent events in English history at that time would have loomed large 
in his thinking. I, I, I'm referring in particular to the assassination of Thomas Becket, one of Langton's predecessors as Archbishop of Canterbury, back in 1170 uh, by King Henry II. And he was killed in his own cathedral. So I'm wondering, how, how would that event influence some of the dynamic? And pr- presumably that would have been a, a memory that was somewhat fresh in, in Langton's mind. Well, it certainly must have occurred to him that he too was a turbulent priest, yes. But what I think is extraordinary is it's not that Beckett's assassination looms over the whole thing. It's that in most countries, Beckett's assassination would have settled the question, who's in charge here, in a way that nobody would have been dumb enough to challenge subsequently. I mean, you you don't find a story like that in Russia, for instance, where, you know, a czar has a patriarch murdered, and after that, the czar has to uh, has to grovel. And and by the way, Henry VIII had Beckett's uh, bones destroyed because he thought yes. it was uh, a very bad precedent. A very, Henry VIII is a very dangerous man. We may or may not get to that here. But what is extraordinary is that Langton's objection to this kind of thing prevailed. And that is where the story of the English is different, even than the story of the French let alone that of many other unhappy places where liberty never really took root. That Langton should be assassinated, pardon me, that Beckett should be assassinated is not the extraordinary thing. The extraordinary thing is that the king didn't really get away with it, that he was forced to do penance and, you know, come lay on the ground and carry a candle and lie down in his shift and grovel and apologize and so on. And it is the church that won its independence rather than the other way around. And also you see that in England, the church, it was, there was, in most places, there'd be two possibilities. The church would be subservient to the state or it would run the state from behind the curtain. The the third possibility of an independent church only existed in England and it only exists in those parts of the world where it now exists because the Anglosphere inheritance is different. And it's remarkable that Beckett had a secretary, John of Salisbury, who wrote a manual on statecraft at the court of Henry II called Polycraticus, in which he wrote things like, the difference between the prince and the tyrant is that the prince obeys the law, and that it is not only allowed, it is right to slay a tyrant. You couldn't say this to the king in most places. And John is writing this in the 12th century. So there is no Magna Carta at this point, And there is no parliament, which raises the question, how can the prince be under the law? Who makes the law? Isn't it the prince? I mean, if you ask people today, where does law come from? They'll say it comes from parliaments. And that's not a bad answer. Uh, in most parts of the world, it would be, well, it comes from Vladimir Putin, right? The parliament is just a rubber stamp if you even have one. And that's true. The medieval French parliament doesn't exist to make laws. It exists to say the king is right about everything. But in England, there is a law that doesn't come from the prince, that binds the prince before we even have Magna Carta. And it is, as Daniel Hannon talks about this, the common law, the law of the land. It arises from the consent of the community. And the, this, the common law or the law of the land, this is a phrase that doesn't exist in other countries because it's a phenomenon that doesn't exist. And then when you look at Magna Carta, one of the most striking things about Magna Carta, after the freedom of the church, is that it says that the king can't tax without representation. I mean, it says there'd be no scootage or aid without the common consent of the kingdom, and people may not worry about scootage very much today, but back then it was a big way of raising money. And it also was the clause that, that John can get money to marry his daughter once, because, of course, he'd have knocked off the husband's, like, ten pins if he could have raised money every time she had another wedding. But Magna Carta talks about the consent of the kingdom before there even is a parliament. And parliament arises because people start to have uh, issues with how exactly do we make sure that this is done in practice. But the idea that in 
England, the people decide what the law is, including what their tax bill will look like, goes back into the 10th and 9th centuries. It isn't new with Magna Carta. It certainly isn't new in the 15th century or in the 18th century with the American Revolution. And again, this underlines that the English were preserving their heritage of freedom in Magna Carta. They were not making a new world. They were making sure that King John didn't make a new world because he had this idea that we should have uh, a ruler with absolute power. This is, uh, you know, most parts of the world, that's an old idea. But in England, it was an, an innovation. And they said, we're having none of that. And again, it, it comes up with Henry III, who, who had many of his father's failings, but didn't have many of his virtues or strengths. And Henry rules for a long time and spends way too much money. And by the way, Henry, he created a zoo in London uh, where they had polar bears and lions. And um, there was a sign saying, you know, if you want to come and see the bears and lions, bring a dog or cat to feed to them so that they'll have food, which would sure get your zoo shut down in a hurry today. But Henry ended up um, you know, spending money and ignoring uh, the rules so much that eventually his own brother-in-law led a rebellion against him. And Henry, uh, he ended up, uh, Simon de Montfort, who was, a, you know, a great man with a terrible failing. He was very anti-Semitic, but, but he ends up capturing the king and his son. And again, you'd say to yourself, well, in most parts of the world, if you captured the king and you wanted to make yourself the boss, what would you do? And the answer is you'd kill him in some hideous way and everybody would be very afraid of you. But instead, what Simon does is he makes Henry reissue Magna Carta. And then Montfort calls a parliament because he's led a rebellion of the barons. And a lot of barons are saying, Simon to who? Like, maybe we'd like to be in charge. So how does Montfort make himself effectively ruler of England? And the answer is he summons a parliament and he doesn't just invite the mucky bucks. He doesn't just say, all you barons and clerics and big rich people who don't smell very bad, uh, come and we'll decide what to do about the peasants. He includes two burgesses from every town, well, four from the Sandborn, and two knights from every shire. And as far as we can tell, they were simply elected by a vote of all the people. So there you get the commoners in Parliament in England in 1265. Now, it, it ends up badly for Montfort because Henry's son, Edward, who's Edward, later Edward I, the hated Longshanks, he's a formidable man. He escapes. He ambushes Montfort. He kills him and mutilates his body in ways I can't describe. And now how does Edward affirm that he's now the boss and never mind that silly old rebellion? Well, he summons a parliament and he includes the common people. And again, you, you don't find this anywhere else in the world. This is an absolutely extraordinary thing. And in 1297, Edward's parliament passes a law. And again, procedure was very hazy at this point. We're not sure quite how they did it, but this thing emerges, de tolagio non concedendo. I mean, it's so, so old, it's in Latin, written on a part of a sheep. But it says there will be no taxation without representation. That the English will cannot be made to give money to their government except with their agreement. Hmm. And again, there's, you don't find this anywhere else. People think, oh, Pierre Trudeau, we had no rights until Pierre Trudeau or some such fatuous thing. Or even, you know, Americans had no rights until George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. That is a complete misreading of history. These people, to the extent that they did anything worth doing, protected our inheritance, the principles of liberty, but also the institutions that by the 15th century were firmly in place in England to uphold this idea that the law was made by the people, could not be made without their consent, that they had fundamental rights that couldn't be changed even by statute. I mean, Magna Carta stands above the law, and it is repeatedly affirmed in medieval England that if the parliament and the king get together and make a law that violates Magna Carta, 
That law is null and void. So this this we the people that the Americans create in 1789, and rightly so, again, it's not an innovation. It is an attempt to bring Magna Carta into what was then the modern world. And I wish that our Charter of Rights had done the same thing instead of being filled with sociological experiments. Well, we'll get to that in a moment. But I think one thing that's really fascinating, it's not just necessary to make the distinction that Magna Carta was a fruit of medieval Christendom and the understanding of the rights of man, but it was a fruit of the unique circumstances of English medieval Christendom, how what was going on in, in England was was very much removed from the rest of European Christendom. Yeah, it's fair to call it a miracle. I mean, there's, there's this famous line about Athens and Jerusalem meeting in Rome. And this does give us uh, not just, you know, the church, but also Quibus Romanus sermons, not as popular school Romanus. But in England, somehow or other, they meet Tacitus' self-governing Germans. And this produces something that doesn't exist anywhere else. And either it, you get it because it's spread, you know, places like Australia and Canada, or else you get it because you see that this is the only way of governing that is compatible with human dignity. And so in some parts of the world, it has been adopted and has become part of their legacy. I think India in particular, it's going very well. But it only happens in medieval England. Nobody else has a Magna Carta. And Magna Carta is good enough for everybody. So, you know, that it were, in that sense, it worked. But it's not a historical development that is natural and happens in all kinds of places. It happened once. Mm. And it happened there and it happened then. And we're all very lucky that it did. Let's talk for a moment just about the document itself, what it says, how, how it's divided up. My understanding is the, the formal name of the document is, is Magna Carta Libertatum, the Great Charter of Freedoms, originally written in Latin, as you said. It's, it's about 4,000 words. The original version had something like 60 clauses. Uh, and it, it was kind of a at least what we might see in contemporary terms as kind of a mishmash of of general principles of law and then things that were very specific to to grievances that the English nobles were were bringing forward at that time. I want to talk a little bit more about the freedom for the church that is enshrined at the very beginning of the document and then the freedom for the people, the freedom for subjects that comprise the remainder of the charter. So perhaps could you speak a little more to what we we need to take away from the freedom of the church is addressed first and freedom for the subjects second. I should say it it doesn't actually have that title. I mean, medieval documents were different from modern documents. And uh, if you actually look at Magna Carta, it's hard to read, to put it mildly. I mean, you're lucky if they put spaces between the words. (laughs) And uh, before addressing the substantive point, I want to tell you a story that um, to me indicates not not sort of the the quirkiness of of the English or the nature of human enthusiasm, um, but also something about the organic nature of freedom. When we were making the documentary, we had an appointment to go to Odin Castle, which used to be John's hunting lodge. And the gentleman who was willing to take us there was something of an expert said, look, I've got a couple of extra people who'd like to come along. Should I bring them? And I was like, sure, who are they? He said, well, one of them is a woman who's written a song about Magna Carta, which ended up, she gave us permission to use it, and it's the theme music for the documentary. And then there was uh, a couple who were reenactors. And so he was a monk and she was a nun, but they were also scribes. They loved to redo medieval documents by hand. And so he talked to us about the actual manuscript of Magna Carta. And he said, 
you know, not only is it written in this kind of cramped Latin, but you can tell that about a third of the way through it, the person who was doing it looked at the paper and looked at the thing they were working from and said, I'm never going to get all this on. And he panicked and he started cramming it in with all kinds of abbreviations and it gets very hard to read. And then about two thirds of the way down, he looked again and thought, you know what, actually, I'm okay here. And he started to write full words. <laughs> so the, the thing, if you, if you actually look at a Magna Carta, it's just a, a block of letters. It's not really divided up into clauses as we would. It doesn't have bullets. It doesn't have Microsoft Word form. Formatting. But after a whole bunch of rumor about how happy John is to do this and how great he is and how he really appreciates all the people who've threatened his life if he doesn't, um, then it says, yeah, we have granted to God and by this present charter have confirmed that the English church shall be free and shall have its rights undiminished and its liberties unimpaired. Again, it's not that he's making it free. He's promising that he will not stop it from being free. And uh, then he says, of our own free will, we're doing this because otherwise you're going to kill us. And then it says to all free men of our kingdom. We have also granted for us and our heirs forever all the liberties written out below to have and to keep for them and their heirs of us and our heirs. And, you know, it, it got trendy because we all know that history is a plot by the rich and powerful against everybody else, that Magna Carta was a deal between the king and the barons. But if you actually read it, it says to all free men of our kingdom. And later, when people like Edward Cook will call it the Great Charter of Liberties and say it's called the Great Charter of Liberties because it makes men free and Cook insists. And he's another heroic figure from the Elizabethan and um, Stuart period that it does pertain to everybody. Even serfs are entitled to rights, except insofar as they're limited by their duties toward their own lord. And again, notice it is not men. When, you, when it's translated as all free men, the Latin isn't weir, meaning male person. It's homo, meaning human being. Mm. So, uh, and in fact, Magna Carta does some, have some very particular clauses about the rights of women, including that um, John can't prevent them from marrying until they give him a whole bunch of their money, because he certainly would have done so. You know, at her husband's death, a widow may have her marriage portion and inheritance at once and without trouble. She shall pay nothing for her dower, marriage portion, or inheritance. And then no widow shall be compelled to marry so long as she wishes to remain without a husband, because otherwise John would have forced her to marry Guy of Gisborne or something. So that's all in there. And then you go on down. And uh, there is some very peculiar language about the Jews again, and you know you you can't whitewash history. Right. The fact of the matter is that medieval England was a very uh, anti-Semitic place, and eventually Edward the First banished all the Jews. Um, though this this clause also reflects reflects the fact because there were such legal restrictions on Jews. If you died owing money to a Jew, the king would steal it. So you know everybody was was in in danger of getting very badly mistreated. But then you get down to Clause 12. No scootage or aid may be levied in our kingdom without its general consent, except for the ransom of our person, to make our eldest son a knight, and once to marry our eldest daughter. So there's no taxation without representation. Then the city of London shall enjoy all its ancient liberties and free customs, and all cities, boroughs, towns, and ports shall enjoy their liberties and customs. And then there's a clause trying to figure out how to get the general consent, but that didn't pan out, which is why Parliament appeared. There's another clause that's really important. Ordinary lawsuits shall not follow the royal court around, but shall be held in a fixed place. And remember the Angevins, um, Jean Premier and Henri Premier and that crowd. And again, I, I, I named them in French because A, that's how they would have been addressed. They couldn't speak English. Edward III is the first king who could speak a sentence or more in English. But they had, were substantial landowners in France. And, and you know, they, they were... They had feudal properties there. And so Henry II, someone once figured this out one year, which he was sick a good deal of the time. He traveled about 2,000 miles, most of it in France. So if you had to get to the king and tug on his boot to say, please, sir, may I have my farm? Uh, you know, you'd never get anywhere. But instead, the courts are in England and the courts give fair justice. 
And then it, it goes on, you know, no town or person shall be forced to build bridges over rivers except those with an ancient obligation to do so and so on. Some of it's pretty, uh, pretty petty. But as you keep going on, you again find these extraordinary clauses like no free man shall be seized or imprisoned or stripped of his rights or possessions or outlawed or exiled or deprived of his standing in any way, nor will we proceed with force against him or send others to do so except by the lawful judgment of his equals or by the law of the land. So there you get the rule of law and the right to trial by jury. And the next clause, to no one will we sell, to no one deny or delay right or justice. Mm. And here I'd point out, I mean, we don't sell justice in Canada today in the sense that bribing a judge is a very, very poor idea. But it's so expensive and it takes so long that I think in many ways in Canada, justice is denied today, that Magna Carta did it better. And if you go on down, there's stuff about the forest that were very important. Um, there was, there's the guarantee of property rights, that they can't take your stuff unless you uh, agree to delay payment. And then there's a bunch of rhubarb about all these evil people that are going to get kicked out because John's had them around too long and everybody hates them. You know, it's quite something to manage to get named in Magna Carta as someone who must leave England. Uh, the the kinsmen of Gerard d'Ate, and in future they shall hold no offices in England. The people in question are Angela de Signonier, Peter Guy and Andrew de Chanceux, Guy de Signonier, Geoffrey de Martigny and his brothers, Philip Mark and his brothers, and Geoffrey his nephew, right? So these are like, specifically, you're so awful that we're going to actually put you in the document. And of course, you know, we're not going to worry about these guys today, although maybe they're, they're uh, sort of spiritual heirs we should worry about. But there is so much in Magna Carta that speaks to the general principle mixed in with a bunch of specifics that were on people's minds. And you can see that insofar as England became great and America and Canada and Australia and New Zealand, they did so because those things, instead of being gradually sanded away, eroded and eventually disposed of, withstood all the efforts, including those of Henry VIII, an appalling character. You know, one of the rules of history, of course, is don't marry Henry VIII. But uh, another rule of history is don't get any allow someone like Henry VIII any kind of authority. And at one point, in fact, because Henry VIII was not above threatening to behead the Speaker of the House if he didn't pass a bill. And at one point, Henry presented this bill that said, from now on, the king's word is law. And this was a very frightening moment. And Parliament said, gee, you're the greatest king ever. We love and admire you and we're terrified of you. So, of course, we're going to pass this. But we'd just like to add that it doesn't touch any of our ancient liberties or customs. And so they said, now you see it, now you don't. And they just refused to give it to him. Whereas, of course, in France, the king's word is law, never mind Russia. Uh, but in England, even under Henry VIII, they said, no, that's not what it said in Magna Carta, and it's not happening. So just forget it. And it makes me sad to think that we have so much, you know, orders and council and government by regulation and parliament just rubber stamping. Uh, in a very real way, Henry VIII won in the latter part of the 20th century what he did not win back in 1539. And let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, just to wrap up the conversation around the text of the document itself, I, I would encourage our listeners just to go look it up online. Uh, so, so let's let's talk a little bit about the downstream effects from Magna Carta. But let's start with our neighbors to the south in the United States, given that the settlements in the colonies in the New World, in terms of their, their growth and expansion, preceded those of our own. So let, let's let's talk about the first immigrants to the United States colonies, Jamestown and Plymouth Rock, what was their understanding of Magna Carta and its place at the heart of the legal system uh, that they may or may not have brought with them to the shores of, of the American colonies? 
It was absolutely fundamental to their thinking. It's one of the first things that gets printed in many of the colonies. And, uh, you know, William Penn tells um, the citizens of Pennsylvania, hold on to Magna Carta because liberties once lost are hard to regain. It, and it's not just this sort of generic thing that we should be free. It's also important that this problem of how to obtain the common consent of the kingdom led to the development of parliament. As I say, Simon de Montfort and Edward I had the commoners in parliament by the late 13th century. At some point, and we don't even know when or how, but we know by 1346, the commons was sitting separately. And by 1376, they're electing their own speaker. And it's a bit of a puzzling thing. Why do we call the guy who doesn't talk the speaker? And the answer is because the speaker chosen by the commons speaks for them with one voice in dealing with the other branches. The speaker counts the votes. The speaker decides when parliament sits and when parliament disperses. And therefore, the parliament controls its own affairs. And by the very early 14th century, uh, several more very important things have happened. First of all, uh, the when Henry IV seizes the throne from the hapless Richard II, how does he become king? Well, he goes to Parliament and says, I'd like to be king. And they say, you can be king, but we want to make a point here. When you summon us because you want money and we tell you we have grievances we want you to address and you say, yeah, yeah, sure, fine. And then we give you the money and we go home and you don't do it. Well, that's not happening anymore. From now on, you deal with our concerns before we give you money. So this is the, the business of supply in return for uh, control of legislation. And then you get a fight with the, between the commons and the lords over uh, money bills in 1407. And the commons say, look, we represent the people who pay for this mess. So from now on, we have primacy when it comes to money bills. And then in 1415, they tell Henry V he can't edit their, their bills after they leave. So when the Amer colonists come to the New World, they set, set up legislatures right away and they create lower houses that control money bills. And the same is true of the Canadian Parliament. Tax and spending bills have to originate in the House of Commons. And they believe that it is their birthright as English people to have legislatures. In 1619, the very first legislature in the New World is created in Jamestown. Now, of, as I have to mention, that's also the year the first slaves are sold, this terrible blemish on freedom in the New World, and we cannot uh, pretend it didn't happen. But mm. liberty was real. It just wasn't extended as far as it should have been. So the Americans regard not just Magna Carta, but the institution whereby they make the laws and control the executive through the purse strings as their own. And they're so, you know, you get a civil war in England in the 1640s because Charles I doesn't think he should have to obey Magna Carta or, you know, taxation without representation. And something like half the graduates of Harvard go back to England to fight in the civil war. And being from New England, they're all on the side of the parliament. So the colonists are so concerned about Magna Carta that they go back to the old country to risk death to wow. uphold it in the face wow. of a usurping king. And again, Virginia is royalist in the Civil War, and they, they send a note to the king saying, we love you and we support you and you count on us for anything. But if you tax us without representation, we'll cut your head off too. So, there's, you know, you're, you're the king, but only provided you govern in the proper way. And when the American Revolution comes, and the Americans just start, you know, the first, the Continental Congress, they, they just create a legislature because English people get to have legislatures. There's no warrant for it. There's no permission granted or even sought. They just start to gather in legislatures and pass resolutions and eventually make laws. So to them, it is very clear that this is what they're doing. And again, after the American Revolution, when you get to Canada and the, you know, the upper and lower Canada rebellions, basically the British say, we've seen this movie before. If we don't give them their rights, you know, the free and armed people will take them. So we surrender. 
right before that, Joseph Howe, who's, uh, you know, at that point is a newspaper publisher in Nova Scotia, is sued for libel because he keeps calling the colonial administrators corrupt and and so on. And he, the problem, he is in court and under British law, truth was not a defense. So he was going to be found guilty, even though it was all true. But Howe addressed the jury and he said, will you permit the sacred fire of liberty brought by your ancestors to be trampled out here in Canada or in Nova Scotia? And so he said, just annul the law. You don't have to obey that law. Law comes from the people and this law stinks. And by golly, the jury acquitted him. They just said, that's not a law. That's not the kind of law we have. We have English liberty. And, you know, if you talk about the sacred fire of liberty brought from England today, you're going to get some very funny looks, including, of course, from our prime minister. But back then, that is just how people understood it. And they knew it went back to Magna Carta. And, you know, Sir John A. Macdonald, the stuff that I've been talking about, he would have been able to recite much of this without having to, you know, book up on it. He just knew it. This was, and you look at the debates on Confederation, which were only published in the 1990s, you know, Hooray Canada, the Americans have had the Federalist Papers since forever. But the debates on Confederation consists of a bunch of people standing up and saying, keep your English liberties, confederate, and opponents going, no, keep your English liberties, don't confederate. <laughs> Nobody's going around saying liberty schmiberty, that's for Americans, this is Canada, we have socialized medicine. They're all saying English liberty is the best. And they all know about Magna Carta. There's not, you know, it's, it's one of those things that you don't, you don't have a bunch of arguments about it because you don't need to. Everybody knows that's where it took this form from which we derived our free institutions and our free heritage. That's a wonderful clarion call and, and, and summonings. And I think that's kind of a great segue into our closing thoughts here. I mean, it seems irrefutably clear that there is a strong dotted line, solid unbroken line between the Magna Carta and the systems of law that we enjoy here in, in North America. With this occasion of celebrating yet another anniversary of Magna Carta, doing it here in Ontario for the first formal time, what are your thoughts on how we carry this legacy forward into the future? Uh, and you know, we've covered a little bit already around the concerns around eroding awareness of Magna Carta's place at the core of our democratic system. What are your thoughts? What are your proposals or, or solutions or prescriptions for how uh, we restore and, and recover and reclaim that heritage and tradition and how we firmly, robustly sustain it going forward? Well, the first thing is for everybody to buy the documentary. I don't know what it'll do for your legacy, but it'll sure help mine. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> it was crowdfunded, and so you can watch it free. Worst sales pitch ever in that sense. But, uh, you know, again, thank you to all the people who backed it so that we can make it available freely. And the, the second thing is to is to take back our history and and not be ashamed to say that although, yes, there are blemishes, yes, there are things that our ancestors did wrong, there are also things they did very right, that there are heroes in this story, that there's such a thing as a hero. Mm. You know, don't just be cynical and ironic about everything. John Patrick, I once saw him give a talk where he said, you know, how is it possible that Israel could be reconstituted after almost 19 centuries in exile in the disaster of the Holocaust? And he said, it's because the Jews obeyed the injunction to tell your children our story at the dinner table. And I think that it's very important that Canadians tell the story at the dinner table. 
And one of the things that I would like to do is whenever somebody becomes a Canadian citizen, among the other things that happen, I would like them to be given a copy of Magna Carta and told, congratulations, now it's yours too. Please look after it because you're going to need it and so will your posterity. And to speak unashamedly about the fact that liberty is good, that liberty lets us fix the problems that we have uh, instead of pretending they don't exist. Liberty is what made us prosperous, what made us free, but also what made us open, what made us a welcoming society. Why people come to Canada from around the world is because this is the true north, strong and free. And that Magna Carta is the foundation of that freedom. There's a statue, by the way, of Alfred the Great that was erected in 1899. So this was on the 1000th anniversary of his death in England. And when this statue was erected, it was a big event. It was covered by the New York Times. It was a huge deal. And, and you know, these, these classic statues of Alfred, they show him, one of them has him with his axe and his scroll, but the axe is at rest and the scroll stands for law. The other one, he's holding a sword, but it's inverted into a cross. And this is a glorious history. Stephen Langton, Edward Cook, these are amazing people. And the villains, I mean, Bad King John is a classic. It's straight out of Hollywood villain played by um, Claude Rains with, with considerable relish. I think we get back the idea that history is a story and that our history... Although it has its scary parts, it has its dark parts, it has its depressing and appalling parts, it is a triumphant story. And it is one, not just the people who are born here or the people who look like the people who are at running me. Doesn't matter where you're from, doesn't matter what you look like or any of that stuff. You're now part of this great story, the story of human liberty. And it, it connects up, of course, with, with uh, the liberty of the church and so on into the greatest story ever told. But it's the, you know, the story of political liberty is the second greatest story ever told. And it's all true. C.S. Lewis has a line about how the history taught in Miraz's Narnia was um, duller than the truest history and less true than the wildest fiction. Well, our history is as exciting as the wildest fiction, and it is true. And I think that we want to get back the sense of excitement, the sense that if you've made it from some repressive country to Canada, you know, it's sort of like we're reaching out and pulling someone out of the ocean and saying, congratulations, you're, you're in the lifeboat now. And by golly, you know what it says on the stern? It says Magna Carta. Here, here. This June 15th, let's tell those stories. Thank you so much, Dr. Robson, for getting us excited about this upcoming milestone, for taking us through this, this journey, looking at the tradition of Magna Carta and stressing how it, it is our rightful inheritance uh, and it's ours to it's ours to hold on to and to cling to and to celebrate. Uh, and we hope that uh, we're confident that this time here with you today uh, is going to plant many seeds of excitement with our listeners. It certainly has for us. Thank you so much it's again great to be part of it. Thanks you so much again for joining us and happy Magna Carta Day. Happy Magna Carta Day to you and all the listeners. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Crown and Crozier. If you haven't already done so, please head over to your favorite podcast player and hit subscribe. Also, we'd love for you to give us a rating. This helps us reach more listeners. If you enjoyed the episode, perhaps you consider supporting us with a donation. You can visit our website, crownandcrozier.com, and just click the little heart or the link in the show notes. Looking forward to having you with us again soon as we continue to explore all things church, state, and faithful citizenship.